I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Podcast. My name's Paul, and each episode, me and the lads get together to talk about the stocks, stock market news, and finance in general. Quick disclaimer, you shouldn't consider anything in this podcast as personal financial advice. If you need such advice, go to a financial advisor. And please remember, when investing in any form, your capital is at risk. So sit back, relax, and let the lads fill you in with all the stock market news of the week. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. My name's Steve W. I've got Steve D here with me. Paul's not here. He's taking a well-earned break from basically everything. But we're here and we're armed with this week's stories, news, and things that we've been thinking about. It's Wednesday the 30th of November here. Last week was Black Friday, uh, which we didn't get a chance to talk about last week because we recorded before then. So, Steve, have you been buying anything interesting in a Black Friday sale or in a stock market? Oh, I wish, and you're going to wish that we spoke about this beforehand so we could weave this in properly. Oh. But I I, I bought a Big Larry, Steve, uh, uh, in the Black Friday sale. Um, uh, Big Larry is a form of lamp used in the uh, automotive, or torch used in the automotive trade. You can stick it to the underside of the chassis of a car because it's magnetic, and then you flick it on and you get like a, a flood lamp out of it. Um, out of the underside of your car? Yes, so when you're fixing things on the underside of your car, however, being oh. doing a lot of measuring in other people's roofs where obviously they don't always have a light, I thought, oh, this would be a good idea to get a, a big Larry and fix it to my um, to my waistband. So we've had plenty of jokes about going in the cupboard and holding my big Larry and things like that. Mm. Um, yeah, interesting. I won't say the one about the junior because uh might be a bit risky. It might be a bit Balenciaga. Uh, but Steve, oh, did no. you get anything? How young is your junior? Sorry. Uh, I think he's like... 30 or something, I don't oh, know. Oh, <laughs> fine, it's, it's not quite a Balenciaga then. Okay, um, so if my kind of anecdotal data is anything to go by, we don't know the kind of uh, what Black Friday sales look like coming out of Amazon. That's always a kind of interesting tell. But I, if I'm anything to go by, expect to see reasonable Black Friday activity followed by not a lot because it will be everyone pulling their Christmas shopping forward to Black Friday and getting quite a decent chunk of that out of the way. So I did a fair bit of buying of stuff. Nothing particularly interesting for me, though. Mostly stuff to give to other people for Christmas, basically. Yeah, to be fair, I did quite a bit of that as well. So I think I'm nearly done for all my Christmas shopping now. It's just one of those weeks where everybody had a go at trying to make something cheaper, didn't they? I saw today that um, on Groupon, Adidas are offering uh, £50 gift cards for 35 quid, And I think it's £75 gift cards for 50 quid. So that, that is literally free money if you want a pair of Adidas trainers. So uh, head on head on over there. But it does it does reek of desperation, doesn't it? It does a little bit. You you own Adidas, right? I do, yeah. It's slightly worrying. But I, I, I've sort of owned Adidas fully in the knowledge that I know they're just trying to sell everything in their warehouses at the moment. And I think this is one of their ways they've figured out. Of, it doesn't make any difference, really. If you're going to tell somebody to buy a gift card for 75 quid and charge them 50, it's no different than selling them a pair of trainers and giving them a 30% discount, is it? So No, I quite like that. I mean, so it's a sort of 30% discount across basically everything, more or less. So the, the kind of money comes in and then it, you get to spend it on whatever you want across the kind of range. And that's no bad thing if you've got quite a lot of stock that you're looking to shift, as a lot of retailers do right now, right? And things with these as well, uh, with these as well, is that sometimes people actually get the gift card and then don't actually spend it. So that's a technical win-win for Adidas. That's just money in their pockets. Yes, that's free money the other way around. Hmm. Absolutely. Anyway, how's your week been, Steve? Um, well, before we get into that, we've got a little bit of housekeeping to do, Steve, because as uh, as you know, today was uh, Spotify Unwrapped. We got a few things through, but uh, first of all, we've got to lead with an apology. Um, so I, uh, when I set up the YouTube videos and I edit them and, and upload them, I wasn't aware there was a button that I could press that said manage the mid-rolls. As you know, we are new to this advertising thing, and uh, I accidentally missed that button and some people over the last couple of weeks may have experienced around 20 adverts uh, during their watching on YouTube. Now, we, we made about five or six pounds from those videos, which is like good money for us. But yeah, I just wanted to apologize. I had a couple of you reach out and say, like, like Steve, I'm, I'm 40 minutes in and I'm on my 23rd advert. And I was like, well, I'm just letting, letting Google sort it out. But Last week when I uploaded it, I found the Manage Mid-Rolls button, and when I clicked on it, it is literally packed full of adverts. So I thought, 
right, I'll stop doing that. I'll actually put them in where we break topic and move on to something else. And if there's a particularly long topic like there was in something like the Disney part, uh, I just broke that in half with a, with an advert, probably to spare you guys. But uh, let us know if that has improved for you, anybody who did experience that. It was actually the competition winner who reached out to us and said, is this right? Am I supposed to be having 23 adverts 40 minutes in? But no, that's not supposed to happen, and I apologise. But that is how we afford the hoodie that you won in the contest. <laughs> yeah, you literally paid for it with your eyes. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, so we had a couple of others reach out to us and uh, they DM'd us on Instagram and sent us a message on Twitter as well just to say that we would, uh, we'd would we been their top podcast on the Spotify Unwrapped. So thanks to Joel M. Young and to Real Elliot B., who spent 2,557 minutes uh, listening to our podcast and... Uh, Joel was 2,479 minutes, so, like, wow, that's some real dedication. Uh, I wish you was watching that on YouTube when I was feeding you 35 adverts a minute or whatever it was. <laughs> that would have been great. Um, but, Steve, I've pulled some things out for you as well, because there's some bits uh -oh. that you won't know. We also get wrapped as a podcast as well. So here's uh, some of the things um, that they, they let us know. So apparently we created 99% more content than uh, others, than the average other in the business category. So we created about 3,114 minutes of content oh. um, in the last year. So I thought it was quite cool. Uh, our best episode was uh, Chris Hill um, on buying stocks whilst high. I think we probably could have guessed that, to be honest. Uh, it had 335% more streams than an average episode. So it was a, a huge jump for us. It was really, really well received. And I think Chris pushed it a little bit on the show as well, which obviously helped. Uh, Steve, did you know we are now streamed in 47 countries? Not even sure I can name 47 countries, Steve, if I'm honest. No, uh, no, but I think the sort of top five are maybe some of the obvious ones. United Kingdom, United States, Ireland, Canada, and Netherlands, which is probably T. Um, I'm not sure if there's anybody else from the Discord. Uh, but yeah, that was quite interesting to me. Uh, apparently we were in the top 20% most shared globally. Uh, in terms of the podcast, so we were shared on WhatsApp, uh, direct linked others, Facebook and Instagram as well. So uh, uh, blown away by some of the stats, it was just it, it, they're just completely completely crazy to me. Apparently, we're in the top five percent of most followed podcast on Spotify at the moment, uh, which is a kind of crazy stat. Apparently, thirty nine percent. I think this this stat is based on the amount of people who watch your show and actually then go on to follow. And that's about 40% for us, so uh, that's, that's pretty high. Uh, apparently 95% of our listeners discovered us some point in 2022, so which uh, kind of shows you how much our our uh, listener base has, has grown. 11% um, uh, of those people started with Chris Hill's episode as well, so um, not all from that episode, um, which has probably shocked us because we did we did see a big jump in our listenership at that point. Uh, we did 51 video episodes this year, and they were in the top 5% of most viewed on Spotify. Um, so, uh, to be fair, Steve, I think we, sh we started getting some gold sunglasses and, uh, and things like that. <laughs> and just some last stats for you, Steve. So, just from last year to today, we've got 229% up in followers. We're 145% up in streams, 113% up in watch hours, and 112% up in listeners. So uh, that allowed us to break into the business charts. Uh, we hit a uh, peak position of number 13 this year. And uh, we actually placed there for nine days, which was news to Steve and I. We didn't even know there was a business chart on Spotify. But uh, yeah, thank you to everybody at home for, for um, you know, for, for these brilliant statistics. Um, I think we're sort of like quietly proud of it. <laughs> we didn't know these, uh, these things were happening, uh, which is probably... Probably reflects on Stephen. <laughs> Stephen, I'm missing the actual admin part of this podcast, but uh, yeah, crazy. Thank you very much. Yeah, you finished in the right place there, I think, Steve. Thank you very much to everyone who's been listening and subscribing and giving us their kind of attention and time and that sort of thing. 3,114 minutes, you said, we put together. That sounded like an awful lot to me. Hmm. Uh, and then I sort of think, I don't know, maybe about an hour a show, divide that by 50. I know we're not quite at the end of the year yet, but that's sort of around that kind of territory, I suppose. So, yeah, so yeah I guess I shouldn't be hugely amazed by this. Um, I had no idea about any of these stuff. If I was going to guess at any of them, I wouldn't have um, guessed at anything. I only know one stat, and that's our, basically our subscribers on YouTube. And to be honest, I haven't looked at that in the last week or so. 
Um, but I think that's kind of how we run this podcast, basically. We've always run it as something that we'd like to listen to, that we hope is fun for people, maybe sometimes useful for people, and then kind of hope that everything else follows, like airtime and subscriber numbers and sort of mm. all the rest of it, and just let that take care of itself. We asked, I think, once for people to kind of like and subscribe because we were getting close to a thousand and was getting tantalizingly interesting. But beyond that, um, it's there for people who like it. And you know, thank you to everyone who who subscribes and listens and especially the people that Steve mentioned. And if you're in that category of people who have listened to us for what is almost certainly objectively too much of your life, then do let us <laughs> know because we're, we're very grateful and we'd love to give you a mention as well. Um but yeah, uh, that is exciting stuff. It's an exciting time here as well. Actually, we're at the end of term, basically, uh, uh, at work here, which is how my week's been going. And that's both a good thing and a bad thing, basically. It means that I'm nearly at the point where I don't have to teach anybody for a few weeks. But it also means that I have to do everything by the end of this week. Um, and there's only tomorrow and the day after to get an awful lot of admin done so i suspect i'm not going to sleep very much sleep is for the week anyway at the moment i have a five month old what do i care about sleeping but that's kind of dominating my existence at the moment and not giving me that much time to think about markets but we'll we'll see what comes out on this show how are things for you away from microphone steve um yeah pretty good really i mean we're we're, we're still busy enough at work that there's you know there's stuff to do we're, we're we're in the building trade, so it's uh, it's uh, it's slowing down without a doubt. So you know all these, uh, you see all the major house builders um, uh, cutting the dividends and things like that. I think there's more of that to come. Um, there's definitely been a slowdown in in just the general work. It's it's gone from being like you know balls to the wall to just not being much coming through the door and you can definitely feel the you know the the, the sentiment there has changed but stocks wise steve i mean it's going really well today uh it looks like jerome powers um spoke to the market he's uh, not gone down the route of trying to frighten the market it looks like he has uh, essentially told people that they're maybe not the fed pivot they're definitely not going to fully pivot but they're going to slow down the rate in which they're increasing uh so in december we're now expecting not a 0.75 percent hike potentially a 0.5 percent hike i don't think they'll go down as far as a 0.25 percent. so there's a little bit of a mini santa rally happening off the back of it as we speak i'm just watching the numbers here my main portfolio is up three percent and my absolutely stupid pie full of rubbish companies is up 5.09 percent so um it looks good to me i mean netflix is up nine and a half percent steve that's that's a pretty big jump for a company of that kind of size how's it looking your end in terms of stocks a bit more muted my side in terms of stocks but i'm I suppose I should be pleased at the idea that December might just be a double hike rather than a triple hike. And yeah. We've now reached a stage where that kind of looks like something more gentle, I guess, than we were expecting. And sort of a year ago, this was around the time that what looked to me like a kind of auction for the number of rate hikes there would be was was happening. And I thought people were getting excited when they were talking about six rate hikes and so on. And and by rate hikes, we mean kind of individual ones of 0.25. And we've had kind of six rate hikes in the last two months, I think, or something like that. Yeah. A couple of 0.75 pushes. But it's interesting, the, the US side is um, improving on the inflation metrics faster than the UK side. The UK still seems to be going in the wrong direction. The US is coming down gradually, and they're not out of the woods yet by any means. They're nowhere near a 2% target. But it is coming down that side. It's not coming down UK side, but I heard it was forecast to at the start of next year. So, so it'll be interesting to see how that um, mm. goes, I guess. And just as a just as an aside, I don't know whether you saw um, this week, First Direct announced that they're going to do uh, a, a brand new regular saver. Their regular saver is one of those accounts that. You can only put a certain amount of money in. I think the maximum is £300. I think you have to put 75 in a month, between 75 and 300 and they'll give you 3.5% on that money. Well, at the moment, if you do that, they're going to give you 7% on that money uh, between £75 and £300. So that is uh, a fairly, fairly loopy uh, increase. I mean, God, at the beginning of the year, was you thinking that we were going to see 7% interest? To that? I mean, I certainly wasn't. And, and I appreciate that over. If you have the £3,600 to put in over the next 12 months, 
you're not going to get 7% because you can only put a certain amount of in it each month. So, you know, you're only going to end up with maybe half of that or whatever it works out to be when, when you work it out. But for people who are just starting out saving, who only have £300, this is a good account. This is, you know, this is going to be really good for people. Plus they're offering, I think it's 175 quid for you to switch to them. Uh, it's a good time to be in uh, the retail space at the moment. It looks like a very good place to be stashing an emergency fund or some part of an mm. emergency fund if you need a bigger emergency fund than you have. I mean, that brings us nicely to our first kind of topic, but I also have a, an account like this. I have the sort of NatWest version of this where you can pop some money in and you get a pretty decent rate on it. You need to be a NatWest um, account holder of some other sort as well, I think, and whatever it is, I am that. So that's where I'm kind of currently siphoning bits of my... Um, money too i'm a little bit unclear as to what happens when you start bumping up against the top end of what you're allowed to save in there whether you have to keep paying in at lower rates or whether you can put it in and take it out or what happens to the kind of interest over the top of that but we'll figure that out when i get nearer the time and when it becomes relevant it's going to be months and months for me until that happens mm. but yeah I'm, I'm not averse to kind of picking up a bit of a a decent interest rate on a um savings account that can be used to house an emergency fund my emergency fund's been sat there for ages doing not a lot and i like to make that a bit bigger to be honest because i think with choppy times ahead and a recession and so on never hurts to kind of increase the the reserves that are available hmm. no absolutely i agree with you my i managed to luckily enough get onto one of those limited edition santander fixed bond mm -hmm. thing bond releases at 2.72 so i've got some of my emergency funding that i've got some of my emergency funding a short term i think it's a six months fix with tandem as well which gives, gives about four four and a bit percent as well um i've got to be careful because i i think if i keep it in these sort of four percent accounts i'm going to crash into savings limits and and that just makes a bit of a sort of like reporting tax reporting headache um so i'm trying to be careful but it just like when there's so much risk in the market at the moment when you're looking at it and you can see people like jumping to seven percent and yes i know it's a headline rate and it's not really a, the rate you're going to get but it just it's interesting isn't it i think there's uh some interesting times ahead for everybody yeah you agree with me this is attractive and when we start talking sort of seven percent rather than to be honest two percent is enough to catch my attention uh with where mm. rates have been recently but seven percent is the kind of territory that i don't remember seeing anywhere on a decent kind of savings account i mean this is pre-covid and interest rates all coming down to try and keep people uh, afloat and so on i mean this is this is really high and if rates keep pushing like that I know mortgages have kind of flattened off a little bit just at the moment in the UK, but they might well have some way to go if this keeps going. It's interesting, isn't it? I would ex you would expect that mortgage overpayments are going to hit uh, an all-time low for anybody who's in a fix anyway, because they're going to be signing a fix at maybe 2%. If you can earn 5% on your money, it makes no sense whatsoever to pay for your mortgage. You might as well jam it all in that account, and then when your fixed rate ends, you've got this big watch of cash that you can you know i mean if you're still fixing at two percent you know in five years time or four years time whenever your fix comes out that that makes a hell of a lot of sense obviously if you're then going into a fix at eight or nine or ten percent then you might want to use that big wedge of cash to pay down your mortgage a little bit which you will be able to do when you drop out of your out of your fixed term rate so um i think there's a lot of choices for people out there and i think uh, martin lewis is going to be people's friend for the next sort of couple of years he's got a busy whole period ahead hasn't he martin lewis might not be wrong uh, on this kind of thing i mean it makes a lot of sense in these uh kind of times i guess or at least we think it does and maybe martin lewis thinks he does martin lewis probably thinks it does here's who doesn't the fca doesn't uh, we talked about them last week they were busy um turning their attention to trading 212 and other such platforms. i don't know if they're looking at trading 212 specifically to be honest but they were looking at platforms in general spamming people with kind of gamified notifications and giving them kind of encouragement to buy things that might not be in their best interest and so on but they've got some more ideas um hat tip to a combination of starlight and ISA investor from the discord for popping this one onto our desk that i had a look at earlier today the news from the fca is they have decided the savers should stop sitting on cash um why because that's getting chipped away by inflation uh so there's around a trillion in deposits apparently sat in cash accounts at the moment 428 billion of those is earning less than 0.5 142 billion is earning less than 0.25 of a percent uh, annually um they think this is bad then steve they think people's money is getting eaten away by inflation this is something that 
I don't want to... Last week I said the FCA were kind of slow to stuff. Paul disagreed with me, and he had decent reasons for disagreeing with me and so on, and we can all agree and disagree on various things, but hmm. I feel like everyone's wise after the event, but it wasn't just me who was thinking that keeping your money in cash over the last, since we started this podcast, has been a way to get it eaten by inflation, right? <laughs> well, well, no, but, I mean, this is the thing, though, isn't it? It's like, there's all these accounts out there, there's all this noise about bank accounts getting better and better and better and savings accounts getting better and better and better. If you've got your uh, your cash, and I mean that is a lot of cash, four hundred twenty eight billion in zero point five percent interest, one hundred forty two in zero point two five. If you've got a big wedge of cash in a savings account that's paying that little interest, you need to get it moved. Do you know what I mean? There is no loyalty. You owe no loyalty to banks whatsoever, and you're protected by as long as you go to a bank that's protected by the FSC uh, CS scheme. You just go to the one who pays the the biggest interest. There should really be no loyalty. Then they're not showing you any loyalty by paying you such poor interest rates. So that money needs to get a shuffle on. It's almost like the FCA needs to write to these people <laughs> and say like, you do realise like you can get four percent at the moment. You might get seven if you've only got a little bit or license or the FCA do a. I mean, we've we've criticised them before. They do a terrible job of of promoting the good parts of the industry uh, i know they're here to pr protect us against things but in terms of getting people investing getting the right advice to people they always seem to be real laggards and this is an opportunity for them here to to you know <laughs> do good uh, i'm not sure the advice that they're sort of dishing out of the headline advice is that they should start investing is necessarily where i would want to sort of pitch my hat but I think they they definitely should be trying to focus on getting people to get themselves into the best bank deal at the very least. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, anything earning a quarter of 1% here, I can't see that there isn't a better role for that somewhere. So either, you pointed out the FSCF protection scheme, um, that covers deposits up to, I think, about 75,000 per, per bank. 85, sorry, per mm. bank in that case. So... I mean, there might be a case that you have so much money in cash that you run out over the top of that in various different banks that you're in, and there's a, the only things left for you are 0.25% banks. If that's the case, you've got so much money that you're uh, running out of accounts to fill to put it in, probably start investing some of that. But yeah, you're, I, so I'm with you on the idea that there must be a better place to put some of these things, and the FCA would be well advised to try and draw people's attention to that but you're you're also right in thinking i think that the the kind of proposed plan isn't really just that here's an extract from the article that uh we were looking at so the fca plans to reduce the level of qualifications needed for firms to advise on some basic financial products such as stocks and shares ices for clients with straightforward needs sarah pritchard of the fca said now more than ever people across the uk should have access to useful and affordable financial products and services which can improve their quality of life and support the economy these proposals are part of our work to deliver a consumer investment market where people can readily access support and firms aren't deterred from providing it uh i can hear you sighing steve what do you think yeah. about this well i just think this is i just think this is not the best approach i think this is definitely the laziest approach is how i'd say it. this is definitely well we all have to do the least here to do this because we just make the qualification easier and then you know we pick up the slack when you know inevitably people who are poorly trained to offer fi financial advice offer financial advice for a two percent fee and uh, lose people money you know what i mean this is this is kind of the this is kind of the least why why not why not have a comprehensive training program that's ruled out and free night classes for people and speakers at schools and you know maybe even a module at school that teaches uh, about basic personal finance and things like that and swapping around and paying utilities i mean i left school and i didn't even know what a mortgage was i didn't know how to pay a credit card bill i, I didn't know how to get an energy bill i didn't know how to pay a credit card or what the terms were and all these things are really basic and we should know all of these when we leave school and it's sort of a travesty that we don't really so uh, yeah, lowering the qualification to get more I guess I, I guess I understand what they're trying to do they're trying to bring down that you know you need a hundred thousand pound to speak to an advisor if you get more people out there who are some maybe poor, more poorly qualified you swamp the market with advisors that that goes down from hundred thousand to fifty to to 25 is that the right 
option that feels to me like deregulating the banks a little bit uh, that was not a very good idea deregulation in financial institutions tends to mean bad things to me and uh, this seems like bad things to me but steve you reached out to um tom at that finance show did he did he have anything positive to say about it uh, you saw that i'd reached out to that through our account then yes because it's only that instagram that i'm logged into yeah the first thing i saw when i saw the idea of qualification levels for giving out financial advice coming down was I know someone who might have something to say about that. Friend of the show, Tom Morgan, by the way, who is an excellent financial advisor and a qualified one in his YouTube channel, that finance show is fantastic. It's one of the few that I subscribe to and make sure I'm alerted to every video. Um, I thought of him straight away and I thought, I wonder what he's going to think because he already is quite critical of that industry in a number of ways. He thinks there's quite a lot of dead wood that needs chopping from it. I uh, didn't mention anything more specifically. Obviously, he didn't. But... Um, I share your view, and my instinct is that he's not going to like this very much. I'm not sure. He would know better than me. But um, I sent this to him about four hours ago now. He was online about an hour ago, and he has said nothing at all, uh, which to me indicates that he's busy distributing proper financial advice rather than answering all my questions. He's also the person I bother when I don't understand something, and I don't recommend anyone else do the same, because <laughs> hands off, this is my source of the information. Um, uh, but I, I kind of think that, from what I got your idea, your general idea appears to be that the preferred strategy would be to try and educate people to think about this for themselves, rather mm. than provide more cheap, cheap barely qualified let's say, advisors or who have lower qualification levels. And I think I share that view. I'd rather people were able to do this themselves rather than needing to pay somebody else to distribute basic advice like get a stocks and shares ISA, put some Vanguard stuff in it, and away you go, or something along those lines, basically. And, th and that's it, though. There's no magic bullet. These people are not going to go into a classroom and come out and learn how to invest because that's not how it works. <laughs> They're going to learn what sort of products you you invest in to sort of broadly diversify yourself and 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 how to counter a little bit of risk. That that's what they're going to learn in their in investing modules. And you know, I think it's I think we're past an era now where a financial advisor is the sort of guy who rings you up and says, I've heard about this stock Apple. It's going to be really big. <laughs> um, do you know what I mean? I, don't, I think we're past that. I think that sort of like Wolf of Wall Street style, uh, you know, phone call system. I think that's gone. I think the vast majority of financial advice now is about uh, knowing the right products and knowing what to put in those products, which leaves people, you know, broadly diversified and interested, uh, probably give them a little bit of play money to make sure that they are interested. And, and, and that's it, really budgeting, I guess, and then and literally just planning for retirement. But I just don't see, I just don't think this is the right way. I think, I think people are going to find it hard. The people who are sat uh, with a lot of money in a 0.25% account or a 0.5% account, they're not the sort of people who are going to ring a financial advisor and take a, you know, agree to a 2% fee um, because they're just not used to making anywhere near that, that level of return, are they? They've never seen that. You know, that, that, that to them is just going to feel like a net negative. So it, the money has to come out of that account. And the FCA taking strides to move people out of those accounts and be more active with that money is probably the right thing. But all the other bits around this feel all sorts of wrong. Yeah, I think I share that view. I think what worries me the most about the proposal to find advisors is that, or to find and create more advisors, I guess. One of the things Tom said was most important in his job was helping people manage their psychology when things are starting to look a bit choppy or a bit rough. Um, he said the main thing is to convince people they need to stay in their seat. And I think people who have a lot of money hidden in a 0.25% account are quite weak-handed. And I use the word weak as though that's a negative. I don't think there's a problem with that at all. Um, or, or, or dead. Um, but I kind of think that's going to be a real challenge for people who are kind of okay with and not particularly bothered about chipping away with a 0.25% because they've either forgotten about that money or whatever, but they're clearly not thinking that carefully about where it's going. Put it in somewhere and start seeing it going down and you start thinking to yourself, well, look, I kind of knew that was a bad idea. Why did I go putting that in there? Out it comes um, and back to looking at kind of savings accounts again, maybe some higher rate ones. But I think... That's one of the concerns I have and why I think it's that important to try and try and get people the, the tools to educate themselves here. And I agree with you that that part of the system really, really fails people uh, in this country.
Yeah, and they're trying to pass this on through the sort of brokerage sort of platforms and bank platforms. Now they're trying to they're trying to force these people to be the ones that teach you how to invest. And I, I think they're not always necessarily going to be the best people to teach you either, because it's not like you know a HSBC, for example, is going to teach you about the wonders of Vanguard when they have competing ETFs in their net platform. It's it's a conflict of interests, really. This is there's a reason you go for independent financial advice, isn't it? There's a reason why you, you say go to a whole of market broker because you know they they you you want them to offer you unbiased advice, the best advice that they could possibly give you at that time. And I think passing this book, yeah, which comes in in consumer duty when that comes through, uh, when the FCA launched in uh, 2023, uh, middle of 2023, I think that's another not, I don't want to use the word short-sighted, but it feels sort of short-sighted kind of way of getting it done. I think this is a bit, it's a bit like how I feel about this, government at times is that they do make the right decisions but they don't or they sometimes make the right decisions but they don't follow through with it they don't, they don't give the funding that's needed to make things happen as they should they kind of like think this is the direction we need to go how can we do this the absolute cheapest way possible and if it doesn't happen we'll just say well the people were interested you edit this show. We'll see if that bit where you said the government makes the right decisions stays in by the time we reach the air time <laughs> I don't know um okay uh, going slightly out of the order that we agreed but it does feel like it follows on quite nicely uh, on the subject of i guess advisors and investment products and things that you may or may not want to buy you pointed out to me yesterday i think it was that the meet kevin etf uh is now live so meet kevin is a youtuber who has more uh, followers and viewers than steve me paul and any other uk youtuber probably uh will have put together in times by about eight uh, he's a hugely uh, successful YouTuber. There's no two ways about that. Uh, former real estate guy, uh, attempted to run for governor, I think, of somewhere in the US, California side, it also failed, um, but is now launching his own ETF. Um, former, oh, former Millennial Money uh, podcaster, I think, as well. Um, so, uh, very successful investor, very successful um, YouTuber. He's got an ETF. Uh, and its main theme is, uh, ETFs need themes, it's an actively managed one, and its theme is quote-unquote pricing power, which is a good thing to be looking for. Uh, I've got a quote here on the subject that said uh, from him, the vast majority of companies we invest in, we're looking for positive cash flow, free cash flow, earnings per share, and growth. Anything that ensures these companies do prove pricing power. Uh, we're in a high inflationary environment. The States is still high inflation. I said it was coming down, and it is. But pricing power is an important inflationary thing. So, Steve, did you have any thoughts on this ETF, or what was your initial reaction to the discovery that this ETF was, well, exist? Well, yeah. Um, what? Yeah, why? And that I mean, my initial reaction was, I, to be honest, I did hear about this before, and but I'd forgotten it had happened, and then when, <laughs> when he got arrested for drink driving, I thought, well, this is definitely not going to happen now, but... But here we are. So, I mean, I'm, I've seen this ETF and I've seen the holdings in it. And I think it's frankly one of the weirdest things I've ever seen in my life. Like, I can't make any sense of the structure. There's, there's companies in there where he only holds two number of the stocks. And, you know, I hear you shouting at home saying, well, what if the Berkshire Hathaway A? They're not. They're invitation homes and you can buy them for $31 a stock. It's like, why would an ETF with a half a million pound... Uh, amount of money in it a half million dollars sorry uh, amount of money in it. why is it buying 61 dollars and 98 of of a stock of a house builder and not point not not one position it, it, it that doesn't make any sense to me steve is, is there anything in here that explain you can you explain that or is there anything in there jumping out at you uh, there's stuff in here that jumps out of me, but there's stuff in here that confuses me. So I'm going to work from the top and make my way down. So there's 22% okay. in Tesla. Uh, no real argument about that for what it's worth. Don't mind this being heavily weighted towards something. Meet Kevin is a guy who has made a load of money on Tesla, I think. Um, no reason. He would know more about that than I would. Uh, second is Apple. Um, and between Apple and Tesla, Tesla's 22%, Apple's 14%. Uh, that's about 36% of your portfolio. So that's a good whack into those two. Um, things. I, I own Berkshire Hathaway. I'm not about to complain about people having top-heavy portfolios in Apple. The third thing on my um, on the list catches my eye. It's the US government's two-year treasury note ETF. 
which is 8% of the portfolio. And then it's Taiwan Semiconductor, and then it's the Trade Desk rounding out the top five at 7% and 5%. That third one catches my eye. Does a bond ETF have pricing power? In what, in what sense does a bond ETF have pricing power? I have no idea. I, I, to be honest with you, I don't, I don't really know how the Trade Desk has pricing power either, to be honest with me. They're, a, they're an advertising platform at the end of the day, mm. you know, with a lot of competition that doesn't tend to lend itself to to pricing power. And the other one I've kind of noticed is, is Tesla having pricing power is, is something that's a little bit sort of up in the air at the moment. And I noticed that their uh, percentage of EV sales in America has fallen again for the for the uh, third straight quarter. It's gone from, I think they were 79% of all e, uh, EVs registered last year. It dropped to 75. It's now 69. That's a 10% swing already. So... I don't know. Does that signal that you have pricing power? I'm not entirely sure. I think one of the things that I noticed from this, apart from my confusion about the bond uh, thing, and maybe I've not looked into this carefully enough, that is highly possible, by the way. My research on this was quite limited due to partly a lack of time and partly a kind of lack of interest because I think it highly unlikely that I will wish to add this to my portfolio for a reason I'll come back to. But I had looked down the holdings and... Steve, tell me about the first company you think of when it comes to pricing power, or what you think has pricing power as an obvious example. Um, so I guess the first the first one that jumped out at me was one that I, I think has just reached the peak of its pricing power. Um, when I looked down this list, I was looking down for tickers that I knew because it's all listed as tickers uh, to start with, and, and mm. Etsy was the one that jumped out at me because Etsy's ticket is Etsy. And I looked at that and I thought, well, to be fair, they have flexed some pricing power this year. They've raised the prices on all of their sellers and they've raised them by quite a large amount. But what actually happened when they did that was a lot of them threatened to leave and a few more of them actually did leave. Now, Etsy reported a jumping revenue because not many left as the increase in the charge. But that doesn't show you pricing power. That just shows you that you raise the charges higher than the people that left. So Etsy for me is not one that has pricing power. Uh, I jumped to Enphase, uh, which again is another stock that I don't think has pricing power. I think it's a solar inverter. I think it's mm -hmm. pretty much a, a commodity market as far as I'm concerned. Uh, solar Edge and Enphase. Enphase is doing very well. They're executing very well, but I don't think they've got pricing power. AMD, does AMD have pricing power? Uh, that's tough to say because realistically that's about the product, isn't it? If the product is good, AMD can charge for it and their product has been good for a, a period of time now, but there was a period of time when AMD's product wasn't very good at all. So, yeah, I don't think there's a huge amount of pricing power here. Uh, to be fair, there was nothing that jumped out at me that said... These guys have real pricing power. These are these are you know these are the ones that are gonna you know gonna win the day for him. I'm not a huge pricing power expert on this. I think one of the lessons that I've been learning in 2022, and maybe we'll come back to this in a future show, is that fewer things have real pricing power, like ability to kick through inflation, than I than I realised basically. Um, the the obvious things to me that are able by by basically law to pass through inflation as utilities, but he doesn't own any of them, uh, as far as I can tell. I don't know what all of these are, but I don't see any there. Uh, they're allowed to just ramp revenues to pass on inflation and so on, uh, but that, I don't think any of these is a utility. The things that strike me as the two most obvious pricing power things that come to mind when I think independent of anything, uh, whether it's in the ETF or not, neither of them is in the ETF. And so I've either got something badly wrong here or meet Kevin disagrees with me, and they are ASML, uh, who I think can probably shove through prices basically anywhere, um, and Google, um, because they have the biggest advertising platform. I get the impression they will push through costs and continue to have a product that no one else can match. Neither of those is in this ETF, and that somewhat surprises me. Um, if anyone knows why or has anything else that I should look at on this subject, do let us know in the comments, by the way. But I was surprised to see neither of those two things there. So one of the other ones that would have pricing power is any of the pharma companies that have uh, mm. have a, 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 a drug that has no competition that's still in patent. So, you know, you could say Vertex Pharma with their cystic fibrosis drug. Um, that will have a certain degree of uh, pricing power. Uh, that would have been something that I would have thought I would have, I would have seen in here. Uh, and again, things like... Um, 
Bristol Myers Squibb is another one that, that they've got a lot of pattern based thing um, that that would maybe maybe Starbucks as well. Starbucks may have a bit of pressing power. They've they've raised their prices quite a bit recently, and they seem to still have the have the footfall. But none of these are in this list, and that kind of I mean, what about? Um, you know, one of the exchanges like the NASDAQ or maybe the S&P, they would have pricing power because people need to list in the NASDAQ, they need to list on the S&P 500. None of those are in the in the sheet. We've got things like Sunrun, um, which I don't think has any pricing power at all as far as I'm aware. Solar Edge and Enphase, they're competing with each other. I don't think they have <laughs> pricing power. I think they're uh, commoditized. I mean, Lululemon, do you think Lululemon has pricing power? Um, I'm not sure. Lululemon might have some pricing power when things go very well, which is kind of not when you need pricing power. I mean, they managed to flog a lot of stuff to people during lockdowns. Hmm. Yeah, true. I just, I think this, I mean, if this is the best sort of 20 stocks you can come up with, it, it's a very uninspiring list. It's very meat, Kevin, in that the top two are kind of what you would expect to be. Um being Tesla and Apple, and I guess Autodesk to a degree may have a bit of pricing power. It is a, a, a pretty much a leader in sort of computer-aided design. I guess that has an element of pricing power, but I just found this like, God, if this is the, if somebody said to me, I'm going to give you half a million to, to make an ETF, is this the list of stocks I would have come up with? I just don't think it is. I think this is a very generic looking, fairly boring looking retail sort of pie that you would see on Trading 2 and 2. Yeah, I think there's a couple of reasons that I'm unlikely to uh, to put much into this ETF, if anything. Uh, probably nothing, if I'm honest. Um, one is that I'm not sure it's available in the UK. Uh, so that's a large sure. issue. Um, uh, in fact, that probably makes all my other reasons kind of irrelevant. But here's another reason. I looked at the kind of managing fee charge on this. It's actively managed. Um, so I suppose you might expect a slightly higher fee. But the fee on it, as I understood it, was uh, its management fee of 0.77%. So just for context, uh, Kathy Wood is 0.75. So this is slightly higher than ARC and all of its research. And you can think what you like about ARC. You can think it's great. You can think it's rubbish. You can think it's somewhere in between. But I view them as a serious research outfit that produces serious stuff about serious stocks. And sometimes they're wrong and sometimes they're uh, way too correlated in their holdings and so on. But this is not cheap. Um, and one of the reasons I'm not buying this is I bulk at paying 0.77% for something unless I have a really, really firm idea that it's going to be worth it to me. I'd much rather buy Berkshire Hathaway's lopsided portfolio for a fee of nothing uh, to start off with. Would you sooner have your money in either ARK or Meet Kevin's ETF or would you sooner have it in a 0.25% savings account? <laughs> that is a good question. I would take Ark or Meet Kevin over uh, a 0.25 saving account. Um, assuming I get to hold it there for, you know, long enough for them to try and recover out of this ditch that they're uh, probably yeah. both in. 50 years. Um, the other reason I was after this is that I, I quite like the idea of an inflation uh, busting ETF. This makes a lot of sense to me, but there are two ways to kind of fend off inflation. And by the way, as far as I can tell, the pricing power thing isn't necessarily uh, just to do with inflation. That's my thinking about this. But there's two ways to basically fend off inflation. Inflation is prices rising. And the reason that's bad for businesses is their costs rise. So their cost of buying stuff rise, their cost of paying people rise, their cost of um, producing stuff, manufacturing, all that kind of stuff goes up, basically. So then you have two choices as a, a business. You can either try and push your prices up and hope your customers don't run away, or you can take the hit and you can make uh, less money, or you can kind of do a little bit of both, basically. Those are, those are not the only two options. You can fit somewhere in the middle uh, of those. The other way, though, to try and fend off inflation is to just buy businesses that don't have massive costs uh, and therefore don't have that much to try and pass through one way or another. So good examples of these are stuff like franchises, like McDonald's or quite a few things like Airbnb, I think, is a decent example of a franchise. So they don't pay anything to acquire hotel or hotels, buildings and so on. They don't pay anything to run those. They leave those to the operators. Someone else takes all the costs and they just take a cut out of revenues and so on, which means that, OK, if the cost of uh, running a, a B&B of some sort goes up, the hell does Airbnb care? Uh, if someone hikes revenues, great. If they don't hike revenues, oh well, uh, incomes are kind of um, similar amount of revenue stuff here. So I guess that would be my kind of preferred way to try and fend off inflation, trying to build a portfolio out of stuff that basically has very low capital costs. So 
in other words, if you don't have to pay for very much stuff, you're not that much bothered about the cost of paying for stuff going up because it doesn't affect you too much. And this actually brings up a notable admission from that portfolio, really, is the fact that Airbnb out there, considering he's into his real estate, you would have thought that those two those two would cor- uh, correlate pretty well. Um, in fact, there's really not a lot in there in terms of real estate. There's, there's just two companies with $60 each in them, which doesn't seem like the... You know, I mean, that's not staying within your circle of competence, is it? You mentioned Invitation Homes. That's a REIT that uh, specialises in basically houses. What's the other one, Steve? American Homes for Rent. I do not know what that is. Uh, I suspect it to be another thing of broadly similar structure. Uh, I, I don't I don't know what it is either. It's just it's a real estate invent. Uh, it's a REIT uh, in California. Uh, he's probably, he maybe even owns it himself. <laughs> yeah fair enough i guess uh that might well be the case um what kind of a theme would you go for for an etf steve if you were if you were an etf what kind of an etf would you be someone asked us a question actually once that we thought about as a midweek footsie uh where if playing footsie was an etf what would be in it um i'm not worried about too much of exactly what would be in you steve but if you were um an etf what would you what would your theme be and how much would you charge <laughs> Well, I think that my answer to this is a really boring answer because I think I would just be... Look, if I wasn't picking individual stocks, the only thing I would buy is an all-world ETF. I think I've said that enough times. My benchmark mm-hmm. is VWRL. I don't want to buy Vuzek because I don't know if America's dominance is going to continue with something like VWRL or VWRP or whatever the equivalent is, the Vanguard uh, all-cap um, OEIC. those three between those three or one of those three gives me coverage to everything i need and will be algorithmic uh, algorithmically balanced to whoever wins it's kind of like backing the winner you know backing all six horses in the race almost isn't it but with you know with a chance of winning six percent back it's it's uh so i guess that's what i would be as boring as that is i would be an all-world etf um and I think that sounds really dull, but I think I think that's what I would be. And I, you know what? I'd go under. What, what's what's Vanguard? Not point two three. I'd undercut him. Not point two two. Not point two two for Steve's uh, presumably all weather pie that he's going yeah, to build I, on. I have to buy seven and a half thousand stocks and keep a spreadsheet, but I'll do it. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? I mean, Vanguard ought to make this for a reason, right? Yeah, but they they also make like a trillion trillion dollars a year in profit out of it, don't they, or something? So yeah, uh, okay, okay, I would probably do it for that in that case. Um, I suppose I'm a bit more optimistic than you are on the US for what it's worth with these tracker things. But what I would note on that is your VWRL example you gave. I, I own uh, some of that fund in uh, Lifetime ISA. That is fairly heavily US weighted at the moment anyway, just because currently the biggest companies in the world do tend to be US ones. There are some other ones that kind of get in there and it's not all US like the S&P 500 is. But realistically, the size of Apple compared to uh, the biggest companies in Europe, Japan or wherever, um, it's going to be much, much heavier weighted towards uh, the States than it is anywhere else. So you kind of get the thought that I have, which is that I would wait towards America, given a choice, but VWRL does wait towards America. Um, so another nice reason to be in that. Yeah, and that's precisely the point, I guess, is that um, it's kind of like, yeah, I guess it is. It's just like backing all horses, isn't it? America is currently winning. If China becomes the new America, then that ETF will automatically rebalance and adjust those percentages to, to suit. So I think they'll be a little bit of pain if that if that was to happen but uh, you know you would expect these things to happen gradually i guess over a longer period of uh, a period of time wouldn't you so yeah i think i guess i would be an all world etf wow you've turned into the boring one steve yeah i thought you'd be some sort of blitz scaler thing that goes up and down like 30 percent every other week I started off by being like, yeah, I'd be like, ah, but I'd pick good companies. And then I thought, well, <laughs> no, to be fair, I wouldn't. I think I probably do have a fairly a fairly boring uh, investing style deep down. It's just that that uh, you've got to sometimes flex on that a little bit to try and go and get a little bit of alpha. You've got to go outside of your, uh, sometimes a little bit outside of your comfort zone just to go and find, you know, great stocks. I mean, I wouldn't have stumbled across something like ASML if I was sticking to my 
you know, all well value investing mantra. I wouldn't have found Sartorius that ran up massively for me. So um, even like things like ITM Power and things like that back in the day when they ran uh, ran up really really large for me. Greatland Gold, th- there would be no. Uh, there would have been none of that and they they've given me the greatest return so yes i think it's good to have really steady stuff in your portfolio i'm in the moser camp at the moment i am my brain is in the jason moser from the motley fool camp where have the steady stuff and have the exciting stuff all in the same basket but you know weigh weigh yourself down for the the companies that are going to do you the six seven eight nine ten percent returns every year and then have a little bit of magic stuff on the side that that you know might go absolutely crazy, uh, and I think I guess that's just where I am at the moment. I guess the market's beating me into this kind of, you know, this kind of corner. It's interesting that kind of thing. So I've also been thinking about um, some steady and some fairly boring stuff, but some stuff that I think is quietly underrated and has the scope to do well over the next couple of years. I said earlier today, or earlier yesterday, I think, that for this one, I was wanting to talk about preferred stocks a little bit, because we don't talk about them very much on this show, and I think a good amount of our listenership, based on the limited amounts I know about them, might want to have a think about them, because they're dividend investors, and I think more dividend investors should own these things, or at least think very seriously about owning these things. So, in the style of our kind of overview of bonds that we did about seven months ago or something now some distant video back in the past here's a quick primer on preferred stock Uh, it kind of goes halfway between a stock and a bond and i think dividend investors would do well with it i own some and i'll come back to the one that i own in a little bit Um, but here's the difference then between preferred stocks and common stocks so suppose that i own preferred stock in a company and steve owns the common stock here's the main difference We both get dividends, but mine is fixed. My dividend can't go up and it can't go down. I get paid the same amount every year. Steve's can go up, uh, which is why dividend investors, especially dividend growth investors like Paul, don't like these very much. Uh, Mine isn't going to go up. Uh, His might if the company does better. But here's where I get my kind of uh, payoff here. My dividend gets paid before his gets paid. So if the company wants to pay him anything in the form of dividends, it has to pay all of mine. And there's sometimes different levels of preferred shares. So there's like the first preference and second preference and they get paid in order. But the kind of um, protection you get from uh, a preferred stock is that if any dividends get paid at all, yours will definitely get paid. The worry that dividend investors have, I guess, quite a bit is that dividends will get cut or go away or something like that. If you own the preferred stock, I reckon there's a lower chance of that happening, because if the company wants to pay anything out, it has to pay you. You also get preferential treatment in the event of liquidation. I mention that because it is a feature of these things. I'm not particularly interested in the idea of buying companies with a view to liquidating them and trying to uh, make money by selling the assets for more than they're currently worth. But if that happens, common stockholders generally get wiped out. Preferred stockholders fit in behind the bondholders on these things. Um, they come in various different types, these, and there's some jargon around them that's worth blasting through here for the moment. So cumulative versus non-cumulative. Some preferred stocks cumulative, some isn't. That basically matters if nobody gets paid a dividend ever. So a company can decide I'm not paying dividends to anybody, common equity holders, uh, preferred stockholders, anything like that. If your preferred stock is cumulative, your missed payments add up and you get paid everything before the common equity gets anything. So if I was supposed to get 10 cents a year from my um, preferred stock and I don't get paid for five years, company has to pay me 50 cents before it can start paying Steve anything at all. Uh, some of them are callable, some of them are non-callable. And this is basically an annoying debt for a company. So preferred stock is irritating because you have to pay it. Uh, but if it's callable, it means it can be bought out usually after a certain date at a fixed price. And some of it's convertible and some of it's non-convertible. Convertible here basically means it can be turned back into common stock at a certain rate, which can be quite nice for either side, depending on whether it's going up or down. Um, Steve, have you ever owned anything uh, that was preferred stock? You've occasionally dabbled in some more exotic things like gilts and so on, but has common stock ever caught your uh, sorry preferred stock ever caught your eye? It, it hasn't, um, no. But because of the, the, there's a lot of upsides to preferred stock, especially in companies where you fear the dividend is going to get cut. So if you've got a, if you've got a company that's paying an eight percent dividend and you work out their payout ratio on their cash flow is like in the nineties or something like that, and they have preferred stock out there, they're going to pay you a six percent dividend on. Uh, it's probably the better idea to pick up the six percent dividend and not suffer the dividend cut later down the line. Um, I know there's 
quite a shortage of preferred stock out there isn't an awful lot to uh, to pick through uh, and one of the problems that it does have is if that company has a influx of earnings and uh, starts to raise up and makes that dividend 10 12 percent on a raising uh, rising stock price the preferred share tends to not actually get most of that benefit as well so i tend to think of preferred stocks as more like having a bank account within your ISA, if you see what I mean. They're almost like having a savings rate within your ISA. They, they, they fluctuate up and down. They're somewhat illiquid, but they will often pay you, you know, whatever the, whatever the going rate is on that dividend, which tends to be, uh, especially lately, a little bit higher than what you're getting out of the stocks themselves. Uh, you don't get any voting rights in them as well. That's another key thing to, to, to note. But uh, I've looked at them. Uh, in short, to actually answer your question, I've looked at them. I've never actually bought them. Uh, I have read your articles uh, written about them, though, so <laughs> I'll let you carry on. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, I've done a little bit of scribbling on them. Mostly I've struggled to find enough uh, words and loud in my word count to say the things I kind of wanted to talk about them. But Steve points out a number of shortcomings of these. The point about them being highly illiquid is a very, very good one. They are often much, much, much more thinly traded than common stocks, which means that firstly, spreads can be quite big on them, certainly compared to common equity. And secondly, it can be hard to sell them. So you really, really shouldn't own these if you think there is any danger that you're going to want to sell them. Uh, Steve also points out that they are kind of like, I mean, he said like having a savings account in your in your ISA, I think of them sort of like a bond because realistically a company is not uh, going to raise its kind of fixed things. These are more like a cost, more like a debt, basically. Uh, and they're not going to deliberately pay you more interest on a, a loan than than you kind of are um, due. They're unlike a bond in the sense that they can go down and there is no premium guarantee to get back again. If it was a bond, you would get your money back after a certain time. That's not guaranteed here at all. They can go down, and if they go down, you can basically be stuck in them uh, collecting these things. But um, here is why I think they might be interesting at the moment. I'm expecting a recession next year. I'm expecting a recession in the UK. I'm expecting a recession in the US, which basically means I'm expecting earnings to go down quite a bit. It's been a couple of years ago now of watching people who profess to be value investors and by their own definition they are value investors whacking numbers fairly randomly into spreadsheets and always the case that the most conservative number they can think of is some sort of single digit earnings growth it is impossible uh, in the minds of these people from what i can see of it that earnings might go down at any point year over year well i think that's happening and we've seen it happen a little bit in the last couple of earnings calls in various companies but i think we might well get more of it and as companies' earnings go down, I suspect their dividends are going to go down as well. Um, and if the preferred dividend is kind of close to the common equity dividend, and you don't think that common equity dividend is going to stay there, I would expect the preferred to do all right, uh, to be honest. Because what I would expect is, look, all of a sudden a fixed this amount payout when the um, variable uh, common equity dividend is going down, that can look quite attractive by comparison. People will run out of that and into, well, they run into bonds because bonds have kind of fixed returns. But this operates kind of like a bond in that the same sort of fixed return is there. So something like BP is a good example at the moment. They have preferred stock out, which says 8% on it. And you don't get 8% because it costs about well, £1.50 uh, per share. So it's trading at 150% of its kind of what would be par value if it was a bond. But there's a 5.27 yield on the preferred, a 5.15 yield on the common. That, because it's BP, is basically hostage to oil prices. So if you think oil prices might tick lower and BP might make less money and the dividend that it's been flinging out might not be uh, sustainable over this time, you should look carefully at that preferred stock. If you think that dividend's going to go up over time and up a significant amount and you like getting in dividends and want to make as much money as you can through them, you should be buying the common equity here. But... I can see someone with a worldview that says, look, oil prices, there's currently a war in Russia. There's all kinds of supply shortages. Oil is having a good time at the moment. Uh, and there's a kind of more impressive yield to be had from the preferred than from the, the common. Um, I sort of think that that might be attractive to somebody. It's not quite attractive to me because I have something different. But any thoughts on that, Steve? What would you rather own in an oil company? It's a tricky one, isn't it, as well, uh, especially with... Um there's going to be a fair in a recession there's going to be a fair amount of corporate debt flying around as well so there may be the opportunity to pick up some bonds at a decent price so just to quickly 
fire back to Bonds as well. The, the difference, mm. uh, just a couple of differences between the two, really, in that a Bond tends to have a, a fixed maturity date as well, whereas a preferred stock doesn't have a maturity date. So uh, with a Bond, you know, that Bond will dissolve at some point and you will get your, your money back plus the agreed coupon. Uh, the other thing as well is how bonds have, uh, they're just slightly higher than preferred stocks in terms of um, in, in a liquidation. So again, we don't advocate uh, buying companies that are going bust. But if you do, you know, common stock is the bottom of the ladder, preferred bonds in that kind of order. So, um, so yeah, I, I guess in terms of where I think oil prices are going as well, I think we've had the lows of the lows where they, they were negative, you know what I mean? They were giving you money to take barrels off the hands. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I didn't see anybody filling up cars and getting 20 quid from the petrol station attendant. And I didn't certainly didn't get any money through the uh, letterbox from Bulb. Um, <laughs> but now when the prices have gone up, it's completely different, isn't it? It's like, it's like, oh, well, we hedge it, we buy it in advance, and then the prices go up and they go, not that far in advance. <laughs> it's just that... <laughs> It's absolutely hilarious, isn't it? But, no, I, I think you've got the right call here, Steve, for these. I think if you think oil comes back to some kind of normality, whatever normality is for a commodity of, of that kind of use, uh, then the preferred stock's going to look really, really interesting, isn't it? At five and a bit percent, because uh, BP are just not going to be able to sustain paying the sort of dividend that they've been they've been paying recently, including all the specials and what have you, I assume they've been throwing in. So yeah, that would look really exciting. But you know, we, we Steve and I have looked at Wise Alpha a couple of times, which, you know, if you're into looking at corporate debt, uh, you'll see Netflix on there every uh, every week issuing a new bond for something. Uh, but I, I understand that Amazon are about to offer uh, a new shelf as well uh, of corporate debt as well. And I would imagine some of that will sneak onto Wise Alpha. They seem to get hands on all of the, the sort of big companies. So depending on the coupon rate of that, that could be a very interesting bond to pick up, Steve. Mm, I have a look at Wise Alpha occasionally, and it's got all kinds of fascinating stuff. I mean, it really ranges from like Gatwick Airport to Goldman Sachs, basically, and pretty much everything mm. in between one way or another. Uh, and then you get into different kind of security levels on bonds and so on. So you get kind of ranking within that. But as you know, Steve, because you are an avid reader of my stuff, apparently, you are the only one who is and have hopefully a billion different email accounts that you can click on to sign up through things to. Um, you'll know that BP isn't particularly a stock that I'm uh, buying. You know my preferred, um, <laughs> my preferred preferred, that is... Aviva. It is Aviva. I tried out Paul with this a few um, months ago now on a Stocks for Paul thing, and I, he said absolutely not, uh, and I wasn't quite sure that he'd got the hang of what I was offering here. Him. I thought he was thinking I was trying to flog him the common stock, which I wasn't, and I put that 50% down to me not explaining it clearly enough and 50% down to him not listening carefully enough uh, because I'm diplomatic like that. But here's what I like about the Aviva Preferred, or at least the Aviva eight and three eighths cumulative irredeemable preference one uh, shares um, they currently come with a yield of about seven and a half percent so your money doubles mm. every 10 years or so uh, if you bang it in there so uh, stick 10,000 in it means you'll eight bag in 30 years um, and so 10,000 will become 80,000 over uh, 30 years or so in this which is I think that's kind of okay we were talking before and the reason we got to this was we were saying something that will offer you a seven-ish six seven eight percent yield this is kind of in the middle of that uh, it's cumulative, so referring back to what I said before, if you don't get paid in year one or year two or year three, you get paid a lot in year four. That will slow down your ability to compound things uh, and be clear about that, and that will harm your uh, returns over time. But it's not like a dividend cut where they can just take it away and it never comes back again. Um, or if they don't pay dividends for 30 years, I suppose it doesn't. But that seems unlikely uh, in the case of even They'll have no shareholders left if they don't pay anything for 30 years. Um, uh, the big yeah. problem, Steve, there is that they they could take your preferred stock and convert it to common stock, and nobody wants Aviva common stock. Uh, no, that is true. Nobody does want Aviva common stock. It's irredeemable, uh, though. So outside of oh, an extraordinary right. general meeting, this is another reason I like it. I don't want to be converted back out of my common my preferred stock. I'd rather they paid me eight uh, p on every uh, eight sorry and three eighths of a p. I don't know quite how I collect that bit um, <laughs> on every <laughs> share that I own. Um, and it's first preference, so it means that it gets paid before the uh, higher level um, thing as well. 
So that's part of my reason for thinking there's kind of security here. I mean, if you can keep reinvesting it at that seven and seven and a half percent yield, I think you can do all right here. Yeah. If you can't reinvest it at that yield because the yield is lower, that's because the price on your stuff has gone up. Um, and that's the only thing that can shift the yield down. If the price goes lower, you get a better yield on it by buying more of it. So it does kind of catch my eye there a little bit. And uh, to your point, no, I do not wish to be converted into um, Aviva common stock because, well, I feel like I probably have to kick myself off this show if I did that. No, you wouldn't. I'd kick you off. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, so preferred shares, I think, might do all right in a recession. Fixed payouts are likely to look attractive to people whereas they become attractive relative to, quote unquote, growing things that don't manage to grow. I wonder how Aviva will cope with that. Inflation is not good for insurance companies. Find out why when we finally get around to doing our episode on insurance companies. But that's pretty much our show for this week. We've crossed the hour mark fairly comfortably. Just me and Steve this time. I'm off to go and buy some more Cyber Monday stuff. Thank you all so much for listening and watching and everything else. Just one last thing before we head off. While we were recording... A friend of the show, Tom Morgan, got back to me in our Instagram account, and he said on the subject of the new FCA proposals, his words are, Christ, going backwards. It wasn't that long ago they quote-unquote raised the bar. Morons. Sorry to sit on the fence. Cheers, Tom. See you all next week. <laughs>